Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, this week we're going to take a look at a story that, due to the pandemic and a few other long-running stories, may have got a bit lost. I'm talking about the jailing at Cork Circuit Criminal Court of two solicitors, a husband and wife, for an elaborate fraud that went on over a number of years. Keith Flynn, who's 46, and 37-year-old Lindsay Clark both pleaded guilty earlier this year to a range of charges and were sentenced on Monday last. Flynn received a four-year sentence and Clark got two years, with the judge referencing her personal circumstances. What they were involved in was scamming, at least as far as we know so far, nearly €400,000 from various banks and building societies, and doing so using up to 60 false identities, which included the use of the PPS numbers of some homeless people. When Gardaí raided their home, they found various documents, laptops, scanners and wigs, of all things. So what happened? How did two, I suppose you'd call them officers of the court, they were both solicitors, Lindsay Clark actually ran for Fine Gael in the 2014 local elections, but how did they end up in such a criminal enterprise? The Irish Examiner's Noel Baker has been reporting on the story in what I have to say is fascinating detail this week, and he joins me now. Noel, you're very welcome to the podcast. Welcome to you. How are you? I'm not too bad. Now, Noel, the excellent piece you wrote in the Irish Examiner during the week had a headline asking the question, what turned two bright, qualified young people from respectable backgrounds into Cork's Bonnie and Clyde? That phrase respectable is, is one um, of some issues around around how it's applied, but we that's a societal thing we tend to do. But anyway, can you answer that question? What turned them into Bonnie and Clyde? Uh, very good question. And I, I think probably in fairness, they only, they're the only people who know the, the full answer to that. Look, uh, from what we know and from what we've gathered up to this point, pure material gain was the goal. So it was as simple as getting money in. And that was it. So as you outlined there, that they both are qualified solicitors, as it happens, both of them qualified from the University of London, albeit a number of years apart, which is, you know, a bit of a curio, given that they're both from Cork City and environs. Um, Could I stop you there, Noel? If we could just take it back a small bit chronologically, just to sketch out their backgrounds. As you say, both are from, I suppose you'd call it middle class backgrounds in Cork City. From where exactly are they? Uh, well, Keith is from Ballon Temple and uh, grew up in a very well-respected, very well-liked family. And um, uh, he's also a qualified chef. And uh, he uh, began an apprenticeship uh, following his, his uh, studies in London. He started an apprenticeship with a firm in Cork in 2004. This is according to his own LinkedIn page. And then in 2006, he established Keith Flynn & Company Solicitors. And in 2012, they opened a second office in the Capel Building in Dublin. Uh, Lindsay is a number of years younger. Uh, she qualified uh, also from the University of London 
at a later stage has an additional qualification as well. And uh, she would have joined Keith Flynn and Company Solicitors, I understand, around 2012. And by 2014, and again, this is, this is open information, she would have been a partner in the firm. And 2014 as well as the year, as you mentioned, that she ran in the, unsuccessfully in the local election. The first thing to jump out there, Noel, is that somebody starts off a business as solicitor in Cork, as you say, and yet within, what, six, seven years, opening a second office in Dublin, which on the face of it suggests someone that perhaps is very successful and very ambitious. Absolutely. And and from the, and I have to point out the people that I spoke to for this, they were hugely, hugely respectful of their respective families, really. And, and on Keith's side, I think they were very, very wary of kind of saying anything that could be deemed to, to be hurtful towards them because they're, they're hugely sympathetic towards them. But there's a sense, I suppose, that, that he wanted to become a solicitor, that uh, ultimately he kind of found it to be maybe a little bit unexciting. Uh, there was, you know, conveyancing and wills and all this kind of stuff that solicitors do the day to day. But, you know, there was a sense that maybe, as, as one person described him to me, he liked to colour outside of the lines. And, uh, you know, we, we'll have a lot more information in the, in the paper about this because we have a follow-up coming up this weekend and it'll maybe paint in a bit more of the missing colours. But he was somebody who was floating along quite serenely. He's obviously making a living out of it. Um, things were going quite well. He opened the second office and he also, according to his LinkedIn page, opened up a, a second company called ADR Ireland. But I can't find any trace of that uh, since anywhere. That's just according to his LinkedIn page. But he was obviously doing sufficiently well to have been able to expand in 2012 and open that second office. But at the same time, I must say, it's not as though he was hugely well known in legal circles. Um, whether that's to do with the, the super abundance of solicitors we have in this country or the fact that they all work in a lot of different areas. But he, he wasn't somebody outside of, I imagine, his, his immediate social circles who a lot of people would have been familiar with. Yeah, that's unusual enough. I, I mean, the Cork legal scene, such as it is, Noel, one would have thought it was relatively small and the frequency at which, I suppose, they would not necessarily be in court or anything. But as you say, he had a relatively low profile in that respect, notwithstanding he appears, certainly on the face of it, to have been some way successful. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, to, to pick up on that point, some of the people I would have spoken with about his background and where he was growing up, they would have made the point that he was somebody who was quite uh, withdrawn, is maybe the wrong word, but shy, somebody who, who wasn't that effusive in the area. Uh, people are very familiar with each other in the area, in the neighbourhood or whatever. And he was somebody who was seen maybe as a little bit standoffish. Uh, and yet, apparently, within his own social circle, he was, you know, kind of popular enough guy, pretty witty, you know, fairly dry sense of humour. Um, you know, so, I mean, you know, I suppose maybe we're all guilty to some extent of putting forward different faces depending on what circumstances we find ourselves in. But he certainly seemed to have kind of the, the, the Keith Flynn professional urbanised solicitor. And then he seemed to be somebody then who was a family man, but who wasn't necessarily... Uh, out and about in his community. And Lindsay Clark, do we know much about her background? As you say, she came to work from in 2012. She's about eight or nine years younger. She's originally from Cork, went abroad, as you said, to college in London, I suppose, came back at some stage. And she actually ran in that local election. How did she do in that in 2014? 
Well, in the ward that she was running in, there was 13 candidates, is my recollection, that were running for four different seats in that ward. I think it's Cork North West, if I remember correctly, in the city. And uh, uh, she she would have been uh, quite visible ahead of that election. Um, there was in the Evening Echo, our sister paper, there would have been a, a short little piece about her in advance of the election. Uh, she was referring to the fact that she was a working uh, mother of one at the time, uh, that she was a professional woman, that she appreciated the challenges that people had, uh, that, that she could empathise with them and that she felt that she could make a difference. And you might say to yourself, well, doesn't everybody kind of say those kind of things? But she did seem to come across as a very genuine, very plausible person and very plausible candidate at the time, which, which must explain why she was selected. Uh, I think the actual number of votes she polled was in and around the kind of 250 first preference mark, uh, not enough to get her anywhere near uh, election. But from talking to people, I, I don't think she was viewed unfavorably at the time. Her, her performance wasn't seen as, as being disastrous on the doorstep or anything. Uh, Fina Gale wouldn't necessarily be doing very well, such as my understanding, uh, over many years in that particular uh, ward anyway. So she, she ran and it didn't work out. And there was some suggestion afterwards that she may have been selected for uh, any upcoming general election, but I think that might actually be a little bit wide of the mark. I, I don't know that she was act ever actually under active consideration for that. Um, and outside of that, I mean, you know, she had studied, she was working well, um, you know, uh, she she was in a, in a previous um, relationship and, you know, to all intents and purposes, everything, were, everything was just moving along serenely. Um, and at a certain juncture, and I suppose we still don't know exactly when or how it happened, things just kind of took off in a different direction. Okay, but chronologically, so within two years, she joined the practice in 2012. Within two years of her joining, she became a partner and would have been within that period as well that herself and uh, Keith Flynn got married. No, no, they only got married much more uh, laterally. At a certain point, and I can't say when, I don't know anybody really knows, to be honest with you, they split um, from the original family households and... They were together in a relationship, personal and professional, and more laterally than they have got married. Um, I think that's only in the, in the last couple of years, actually. But, you know, if we look at it chronologically, 2014, she ran for the local elections. Uh, the office in Dublin had been opened in 2012. By 2016, something was definitely up, right? Because by late 2016, they had been suspended by the Law Society. And uh, from that point on, they were no longer practicing as solicitors. That wended its way through the disciplinary process within the Law Society. And they eventually appeared before a tribunal of the Law Society in uh, midsummer 2018. At that stage, they were found to have been in breach of numerous um, standards. You know, the, the Law Society found them to, to have been in breach. And they are, were later outlined in a High Court order that went before the High Court to have them struck off in October 2018. But before October 2018, we go back to the first detection by Bank of Ireland in 2017, uh, because what went before the Law Society was utterly unrelated to the matters that concluded at the start of this week in Cork. Uh, so, so there's kind of two separate items, two separate strands in the last number of years. Yeah, right. So as you say, 2016, there's issues around their professional standing, Law Society intervene. And as that process is wending its way 
in the Law Society and Associated Body, the Tribunal. Separate to all that, we have, in 2017, this man, I think he's in an investigative section in the Bank of Ireland, and he spots something. And this is the beginning of the unravelling of what they were at. Yeah, Alan Boland, who works in the, the, the fraud uh, unit in, in Bank of Ireland, his job, and I'm sure he has colleagues to do the same, is to kind of cross-check and monitor accounts, particularly, I guess, a focus on new accounts, to make sure that everything is uh, on the level. And in September 2017, he would have noticed that there was something suspicious going on. Um, now, actually, we, we'll have more detail on this, but uh, what initially piqued his interest was that in documentation that would have been common to six different bank accounts, the same spelling mistake popped up on each of those accounts. But they were to do with six different people, with six different addresses, supposedly completely unconnected with one another. And he kind of thought this was a bit peculiar. And he did a little digging. And, you know, they obviously have a lot of uh, tools at their disposal. So he was able to kind of track IP data. He was able to go back in and, and I think, listen to interactions with the online banking service and so on. And he formed the opinion that there was definitely something dodgy going on. So he would have proceeded then with what I think is called a Section 19 complaint, which is their duty-bound to pass that on to Angarda Siakona. So they would have contacted the Gardaí in Cork, and that's when it landed into Anglesey Street and in front of Detective Garda Alan McCarthy, who led the investigation that concluded this week. Um, and I guess at that stage, I, you know, Bank of Ireland uh, were only one of the financial institutions that were impacted by this. And they would have had a rough figure, but a much lower figure as to the estimated losses that could have been you know, factored in at that stage, if it turned out to be fraud, just because they passed this on to the Gardaí, you know, they're only saying there might be something wrong here. You know, there's still a, maybe a suspicion that it could have just been a simple error or a coincidence or something like that. But the lowest figure was about 32 grand on the offset for, for Bank of Ireland, but it turned out to be more for them and considerably more for all the financial institutions. Okay, so just at that point, we have six uh, accounts and there's something dodgy about them. What... What's their modus operandi, Noel? How did they go about defrauding this money? Yeah, this, this is the crux of the matter, really. So, <laughs> deep breath. You basically, what they did was they acquired eight genuine, real PPS numbers from people who would be known to homeless services, primarily in Dublin, but I think some in Cork as well. Can I stop you there, Noel? To do that, presumably, they would have approached, in some capacity or other, People, and it sounds, as you said, known to homeless service, it sounds like people who perhaps were rough sleepers, as they're called or whatever. Would they have approached them um, personally and said, look, I want, I need a PPS number for whatever reason, whatever. Here's, was around 100 euro and, and paid him that for the PPS number. Yeah, it was transactional. I mean, my understanding is that it was effectively approach the person who's on the street, um, get into conversation I don't know what reason exactly they proffered as to why they would need your PPS number, but basically they just said, look, you know, you, you need money to, to all intents and purposes. I'm paraphrasing here. But, you know, they said, look, here's 100 euro. Give us a look at your probably social welfare card, I'd imagine. They take the social welfare card. All they need is the number. They don't actually need the actual physical card. 
they take they they take the number, hand it back, and then they just go about their business. But the the PPS numbers were the only genuine part of this. But they they were kind of like the the small acorn seeds, and the tree grew out of them. So you have the eight PPS numbers. One of them was used ten times on its own. But you use that genuine piece of information and then you concoct the fake identities around them. So as you mentioned at the outset, you have your 60 identities. That leads to 80 different accounts. Those 60 identities incorporate 41 different driving licenses. The 41 different driving licenses come from uh, an online website called Flawless Fake IDs. But, you know, like with all these things, they're in, in a different jurisdiction. And they also say, you know, these are not to be used for nefarious purposes. You know, I mean, uh, so, so technically they're just offering the software or the, the you know, whatever uh, the service is online. But, you know, they're basically saying don't be committing crimes with them. They went and scoured the Internet then for photographs that would, would purport to be them in whatever guise they were going to be. But after that, it goes off into an entirely new wave of, of false identification because to open a bank account, of course, and to get a loan, you need an address, you need supporting documentation such as utility bill, you have the PPS number, you have the driving license. So all the fake documents are put together. The, the MO was quite simple in that they would apply to the bank or the credit union under the false identity, they would say, can I have a reasonably modest loan, something along the lines of, you know, 10,000 euro, 12,000 euro, motor loan or something like that. Then uh, they would set up a direct debit system so that that's how the loan would be repaid. They effectively drain that account of the money, but the direct debit from another account, another false account, is already set up to make the monthly repayments. One, in most cases, but sometimes two repayments would be made on the direct debit, and then the direct debit would stop. But because some repayments were made, what tended to happen was that these accounts then were shunted towards the bad debt department in the financial in the financial institution. So there was nothing to flag up at an early stage if there was anything fraudulent. And then the other element of this, which was ingenious really, you have to say, is that when it came to the false address element, they would look up on daft.ie or whatever website is of your choosing, they would look up and see what in the, in the vicinity was for sale or what in the vicinity was for rent. And they would put down that address, but they would go to that address and they would knock on the door and approach the actual tenant and say, listen, we're the former tenants here. You know, some, some forwarding mail or some mail might, might come in here for us. When it arrives, would you mind just giving me a bell on this? Just give us a call and we'll come over and get it. So they didn't even provide a forwarding address so that it could be kind of diverted back through the postal system. It was a case where they would show up themselves and collect it. And then this goes back to the fact that, in addition to all the documentation, you had 31 SIM cards. So you had loads of phones on the go. And, you know, it's, they must have had a map on the wall, one has to assume, to actually be able to kind of uh, coordinate all of this. But... So effectively, even if the letters were dispatched from the financial institution going, listen, we've noticed that your, your, your direct debits are bouncing or that you're, you haven't made a repayment, they're going to a person who doesn't exist to an address where they didn't live for an identity that wasn't real. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it is quite amazing. The, no, look, the, time, the key, as you say, is they made a couple of repayments and therefore uh, that gives it the sheen of being genuine. The only thing that strikes me about it, no, no, maybe I'm ignorant in my part here but if, if I take out a loan for 20 grand and I tell them it's for a car loan for instance and then 
the withdrawal of that money occurs over a series of weeks from ATM machines. Is that not so? Or would that, would, it wouldn't be tracked that closely. It would say, hold on, I thought that was for a car. How come it's dribbling out of the account? That, that's not something that would be uh, monitored that closely. To be honest, it's a very good question, but it certainly didn't come up on their radar. And one, one, could, right. ma- one, one could maybe assume as well, see, like we are focusing on the fact that they wore the wigs and they, they had effectively kind of disguises on when they went to the ATM. But they were also wearing that same outfit when they went in branch. So, you know, they had to go in in the disguise in the first place to actually, you know, open the account or to get the loan. Um, the, the ATM withdrawals, maybe they were taking out chunks um, but if it was in if it was in a, a short space of time, you know, may, maybe the credit union doesn't care, maybe the bank doesn't care. Yeah, and sorry, no, I'm fascinated by this element of it. I had assumed that the wigs were purely on the basis of CCTV around the ATMs. You're saying that they would have worn these wigs when they went in in person to sign documents at a branch initially, as well. And w- and would would those that sort of bewigged uh, face or whatever would that correspond then to photographs on on the photo ID, the driver's license or whatever? Well, it has to, yeah, because you know other, <laughs> other otherwise you'd be looking at person A in front of you and the photograph of person yeah. B on the the documentation, and you'd be kind of scratching your head going, what's going on here, you know? Um, now, listen, I don't know, right, up front about it, how many times they went into the branches in particular disguises, but they obviously went in each and every time under a false identity. And one has to assume that that false identity, in some of those cases, had to correspond with the false look, right? The aesthetic. And then they only went to the ATM one assumes, to actually avoid being seen on CCTV or identified as such. So, you know, they were extremely careful here not to make an obvious mistake. I mean, if they went up in their guise as Keith or Lindsay to an ATM machine on South Mall in Cork City and decided to withdraw money from an account that wasn't theirs, well, then the CCTV is going to say, well, listen, Keith or Lindsay was at that CCTV, or sorry, that ATM machine at this particular time. But, you know, if they're, if they're so heavily made up that you couldn't tell them, you know, from, from uh, Tom or Samantha, you wouldn't have a clue. Or me. Yeah, well, indeed, absolutely, and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the other thing, um, in terms of, of where they opened the accounts and where they withdrew the money, was it all in the area of Cork City or did they go beyond Cork uh, in some instances? Oh, Cork and Dublin. And, uh, Cork, and Dublin. Cork, Cork and Dublin and... Um, it's uh, interesting, I suppose, uh, t- t- to note that they would have been quite careful when it came to the credit unions, for example, because, you know, credit unions, I suppose, are kind of like the, the local, local bank. And you kind of have to be seen to be living and working in the area. So they the fake payslips as well, which is the other thing that I didn't mention. So they would have had pay, fake payslips. But the job would have been in the vicinity of the the financial institution. The address would have been in the vicinity of the financial institution. So very little was left to chance here, you know? I mean, it's quite extraordinary. I struggle to deal with my bank account, and God knows there isn't much in it. To, To be able to coordinate 80 of them, you know, even allowing for the fact that some of them didn't actually, they didn't get around to, to applying for the loan or they didn't get around to withdrawing money. Like, it is remarkable, really, the level of dedication and the level of planning and detail that went into it. And also remarkable how they were initially rumbled. That that man obviously earning his corn in the uh, in the detection unit in Bank of Ireland, that he was able to spot that and everything that 
grew out of that subsequently. Um, do we have any idea, Noel, what prompted them to start it or when exactly they started it? We'll have more details about this this weekend. Uh, and, and it is interesting. I, I think it's fair to say that the first account was opened in and around the same time as the suspension of their uh, practice, right, uh, by the Law Society. Right. Even though the two things are entirely disconnected, there's no connection whatsoever between what yeah. the Law Society actually um, ultimately disciplined them for and and for which they were struck off and the criminal enterprise that went before the courts this week. But it, it was kind of around the, the same time. And one logical train of thought would be, well, they knew maybe that the income, double income as it was, from the practice was going to cease. Uh, whether that was the trigger, um, only they know. But the timeline would suggest that it was in and around that, that period. And if that rough timeline is such... It would seem to me you're talking about the initial suspension 2016, the rumbling 2017, notwithstanding we're talking about 80 bank accounts, about money up over 400,000. Possibly all of that happened in little more than 12 months, space of time. Yeah, you could say, I mean, like if they opened, they were suspended late 2016, let's say that the first account was opened around then, and you have to assume that there's a bit of a time lag between you opening the account and then eventually kind of popping in to try and get the loan and then the loan being approved and drawn down or whatever. But like if if you consider that the guardie ultimately put a break, put the brakes on this whole thing in the summer of 2018, you're talking about at most really about a year and a half. You know, because the Gardaí went in with the search warrant uh, in, uh, I think it was July, if I remember correctly, July 2018. So you're really only talking about a year and a half on the outside. And just wondering about their actual, what perhaps the money was wanted for. Were they noted for highly, there's no question, for example, of any gambling habit or anything of that nature. Were they noted for high living or did they have major debts? Has anything emerged to that effect? That's a very interesting question. There isn't anything that I'm aware of that leads me to think that there, that there was another issue. I mean, you mentioned gambling there or something like that. There's nothing to suggest that that is an issue. Um, if you consider the unrelated issue that was before the Law Society, obviously their income stopped, right, number one. But there were deficits in client accounts and uh, there was issues about the transfers of money, etc., in those client accounts as per the, the ultimate finding of the Law Society when it went before the tribunal. Um, is it possible that money was owed to revenue, for example? I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, in terms of an extravagant lifestyle, look, they, they did like to holiday overseas. Uh, I, I think they used to take motorbikes to or, or drive motorbikes around Morocco, uh, places like that. Um, but I mean, what, you know, was it was it any more extravagant than you know other illegal eagles? I don't know. Um, his apartment uh, in Sunday's Well, uh, which was ultimately the subject of the search warrant by the Gardaí. I mean, you know, that the, the rent on that would have been considerable. She was paying a separate rent as well, also. And I suppose you, you you still had maybe outstanding debts, possibly from the running of the two offices. Um, but th- there's there's nothing to suggest that that the reason that they were compiling all this money was because they owed it to somebody else, 
you know. And my understanding is that, you know, mm. it was pure and simple, material gain, uh, they wanted money in, uh, and there is still an element of mystery, I suppose, as to maybe what some of it was spent on or where some of it went. And I suppose the other thing is, as we say, it appears to have gone on a relatively short period of time. And if it hadn't been for our friend in Bank of Ireland, it's who knows how long it could go on. Because as you say, it was pretty sophisticated. And who, <laughs> who knows how long it could have gone on um, if they hadn't been rumbled there. Absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, one doesn't like to speculate. And, and, you know, when you're reporting on these things, you're trying to avoid speculation as best you can. Uh, but there's no question that, that you could kind of imagine yourself wondering how, what was the logical conclusion to all of this. You know, they'd, they'd ultimately have uh, maybe raised enough money to be kind of totally debt free or they'd have raised enough money to be mortgage free. And you could look at, at where it could have gone after that. I mean, you know, could could there have been a fictional credit rating for one of these people or, or for some of the personae that they created? So it's really, really hard to know. I didn't know the other thing, um, and the examiner used this photograph, and I think it's been used across the media, and that was the site of the couple. I think this was taken from earlier this year. It wasn't at the sentencing period. It might have been when, when they were arraigned initially, going into the court. And quite frankly, and I know, you know, um, Looks can be deceiving, but they're very casually dressed. They look like they don't have a care in the world. I think there's been a bit of public reaction against that, suggesting that they're sticking a thumb up at the at the uh, at the justice system. I, I don't know whether that's fair or unfair. Um, I, I, I've discussed this since actually um, with with people familiar with the the case and and with them, and I know that there was a, a yeah. I I, th- I think it rubbed people up the wrong way. The photograph that you're referring to, I think, is from last October. Um, and I think it was maybe at the first sitting of the circuit court. They would have been before the district court prior to that, but when they went into the circuit court, you know, there was a, a, there was a, an indication from very early on that they were simply just going to cooperate and they were going to enter a, a guilty plea and it was going to proceed to court on that basis. Um, but, yeah, like, my understanding is that they haven't really shown much remorse about this. Now, whether that means that they simply don't give a damn, I don't know, um, but... You know, to all intents and purposes, I think they were engaged in such a remarkable and uncommon endeavour. And it was going so well for a while that when it was clear that they'd been rumbled and that the Garda investigation was so thorough and that the file was so comprehensive that, you know, they were simply just going to be facing a a sentence and that was the end of it. Maybe, uh, given their makeup, um, there, there wasn't much... Apprehension, there wasn't much concern, there wasn't much fear. Uh, only they can really answer that question. And I suppose in fairness, a photograph is only ever a moment in time, you know, uh, where they caught yeah. unaware by the, by the photographers or something like that. So it's difficult to ascribe certain characteristics to things, I guess. But, you know, I, I, I do get the sense from some people that, you know, they, they weren't necessarily tearful or full of remorse um, about, about what had gone on. Okay, and as we say, Keith Flynn got four years. Um, she got two years. There's a uh, mention from the judge of circumstances. Obviously, there would have been a reduction in the headline sentence because they pleaded guilty and cooperated at an early stage, and there's good reason for that. But again, I suppose there's some 
chatter in terms of the sentences, whether they were too low, whether white collar crime is treated differently. I don't know. It's difficult to know. I mean, the only comparator there of recent years we have, for example, is David Drum, who's just released. He got six years now involved in a much bigger um, consequential fraud at, at a national level and uh, and he contested the charge I think which and it was a very long trial which is interesting so it, it, it's hard to know I mean the general reaction have you picked up anything about the public reaction to the sentences? I think the public reaction to the sentences is they seem a little bit light but I mean you know Judge O'Donoghue uh, is uh, an extremely experienced member of the judiciary and um he is right across his cases and he would take every circumstance into account. And on the one hand, there's a flagrant breach here uh, of, of trust. Um, there's all kinds of uh, breaches of ethics. Uh, you name it. I mean, you know, but then again, they had a previously unblemished record. Uh, they had no previous convictions. You have to take all these things into account. Um yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I know that, you know, anytime you look at, at a case like this and you look at the Twitter response, people will always say, there you go now. If if he or she was from a different postal area, they'd have been getting more. It's very hard to know. Um, I, I, I mean, I think we all kind of have a view, uh, whether it's grounded in reality or not, that white-collar crime doesn't really come with a lot of punishment, that that maybe you do get lighter sentences. Um, and why that is, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but um, it's fair to say that the Garda investigation couldn't have really been any more comprehensive. And, you know, they, they probably knew that the only way that they were going to mitigate uh, the sentence was to actually cooperate from, from the get-go, really, and not put the state to any additional expense or difficulty. And briefly on, on that point, all I can say is thank the sun, moon and stars that the criminal justice system or any other system is not ruled by what's said on Twitter. But I know exactly what you mean in that respect. Um, and he went into custody uh, last year after pleading guilty, presumably on the basis that he was, and rightly so, he assumed he was going to be serving a sentence. And he's been putting his culinary skills to use in that respect, I think the court heard during the week as well, since he went in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, he went in, his sentence is backdated to the date, I think, in October when he first went into custody. But he's, he's now, I believe, working uh, as, as a, a chef in the canteen, uh, in the prison. But before that as well, um, after the suspension of the uh, practice and after the guard of detection, they moved to Killarney for a time and he was chefing there as well. Um, and he is a qualified chef. And I think this is something that actually kind of happened uh, either before or directly after his qualification in law from the University of London, but certainly happened before he began his legal career. Uh, so, you know, he's a double-hander in that regard. And he was chefing for a time in, in Killarney. They were in Killarney. Then they moved laterally back to Cork, my understanding is. And and now he's, yes, he's he's putting his, his, his culinary skills to work in the prison. Yeah. One final thing, Noel, in respect of it, and that is I could well envisage a scenario when they've served their sentences on the basis of the nature of the crime, the elaborate nature of it, the, everything that was involved. Um, and we know people are fascinated by this particular element. And let's face it, we're talking about something where 
the victims in the first instance, and it's not totally the case, were financial institutions rather than any individual, notwithstanding that, which I think a highly uh, distasteful element to it is this notion of getting PPS numbers from rough sleepers, people desperately in need of money and, and, and unaware of what their identity was being used for. But other than that, you can see that the public would have a major interest in it. And one would wonder, um, when they come out, is there li- is it likely that they might want to tell their story in a book or any form like that? If that were to be the case, there's no block on somebody doing that, notwithstanding a criminal conviction for it, is there? Oh, I'm sure there isn't. Um, you know, I mean, look, I, I'll be honest, I approached them for an interview, um, and uh, I think they were advised against it, um, and that that was ahead of the sentencing. But obviously, anything they would have said wouldn't have materialised until after the sentencing. Um, look, they'll have a lot of time to think about it, um, and to, to be honest, I'm sure I'll try and approach them again if I can. But you, you know, their best place to tell the story. Um, but they'd want a good editor, I'd say, uh, and you know, fact checking might be a problem. But um, it's it's it is a remarkable story. Um, I don't think there's a lot of sympathy for them out there at the moment. I think the the overriding perception of them at the moment is that you know they they had good things in life and they kind of tossed it away and they went down this route. And I, I think you're correct in saying the the use of the PPS numbers acquired from people who are clearly vulnerable and we're in the midst of a, of a homeless crisis now for what the last seven eight years you know we're all too aware of of the the, the horrible situation that face so many people around the country that's extremely distasteful um have we got levels of sympathy for banks and financial institutions back to where they were before 2008 i'm not at all sure uh, but, uh, you know, to, to all intents and purposes, I, I, you know, people mightn't have much sympathy for the banks in the, in the general course of things, but I think they don't have much sympathy at all for, for Keith and Lindsay at present. And it would be interesting to see when the sentences are over and they're out, you know, will, will they simply just disappear off into the sunset or, or, or will we hear more from them? Yeah, I can well imagine we, we are and we have been for some time living in something of a... The confessional has a certain appeal among the public, but as you say, a huge element of that is how sympathetic or otherwise the public are towards the individuals who uh, want to get something off their chest. Noel Baker, thank you very much for relating that for us. Um, Noel's piece, folks, during the week on Tuesday in the Irish Examiner, I have to say, I think was an outstanding piece of investigative journalism and most people who've read it are very much of the same opinion I, I, I'd venture to suggest and as Noel mentioned in the course of that he also is following up on the story and will have more detail on it in this weekend's Irish Examiner thanks very much Noel no worries thanks Mick that's it for today folks I want to thank our engineer JJ Vernon thank you for listening tune into us on the usual platforms and we'll see you again soon all the best <laughs>